following podcast contains information and opinions that are solely the views of the hosts and guests and are not intended to represent employers, organizations, or other entities with which the participants may be affiliated or associated. We hope you enjoy Military Historians Are People Too. Hey everyone, Military Historians Are People Too wants to push two important things with our listeners. First, we don't get any compensation from the University Press of Kansas. The wonderful folks out there in Lawrence kindly promote our podcast on their social media feeds, and we're really grateful for that. In return, we encourage you to check out the University Press of Kansas and its great list, including many military history titles and series such as Modern War Studies, which I am honored to serve as series editor. But we don't want to just push the University Press of Kansas. Brian and I encourage you to check out the amazing books and journals offered by the University Press community. Whether it's North Carolina, Texas A&M, Cornell, NYU, Cambridge, Oxford, whatever, visit their websites, check out the wonderful scholarship these and other presses produce each year. If you see something you like, if you can buy it directly from the press website, all the better. And in that same vein, as a non-monetized podcast, we rely on our listeners to help us get the word out about military historians or people too. So please retweet, repost, share on all your social media feeds, our podcast and pods like Bowen Blade, Khaki Malarkey, ThePeel.News, and any others that you listen to. You are such an important part of all of us reaching our listeners. So thank you for your support. Please share us, keep listening, and enjoy today's show. Wow. That's what the bathtub looked like. <laughs> the bathtub. They had yeah. to crack they had to crack it to get in there. Well, no. So what was happening? It was it was so clogged up that when I tried to Oh, I'm sorry. It, that's what it that's the junk that's in there. That's the junk that shot up it came back up into the bathtub. Gotcha. Were, so yeah, it was a it was a mess. But um yeah, like you noticed, it could have been a lot worse. You know, they could have said, yeah, we got to replace everything. But uh, Well, I mean, just another example that military historians are people too, Brian. Yeah, we uh, and uh, we, we have we have plumbing problems. We get, we get sewage <laughs> backups, um, <laughs> all that kind of fun stuff. Yeah. But, you know, it was when they got in there, it was a bunch of like grease and stuff. And yeah. I figured out, I think what it is, is my daughters use all of these body washes with like shea butter. Yeah, I think I think they're just oil and grease from that stuff going down into the into the system. Um, and, you know, it's going to be a fight to conv convince them that they can no longer use all of those uh, products. Bar soaps, man. Bar soaps. Bar yep. soaps. We, we, we have embraced the bar soap thing where the shampoo, the conditioner. Soap, it's yeah. all bars. You got that. You yeah. do the shampoo bars. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And they, they work great. In fact, I, I, I'm using one right now that's like an all-in-one and it, it does fine. And you just uh, kind of like lather it up and then put it in your hair. Yeah. You just, you know, wet your hair, you know, and, and it, I mean, it, that lather, would, it lathers that great. Would reduce, that would reduce a tremendous amount of plastic waste in my house. I know that's, and that's why, you know, Jennifer's really all, all in on, on that. And, yeah. and um, so she, She's, you know, she researched, you know, looked up the, what the best products were, stuff like that. And yeah, that's kind of, that's what we've been doing for a while now. You're, you're not having to recycle a plastic shampoo bottle and, and it also all that 
like in those bath washes, those uh, little beads. Yeah, they they, they just too. yeah they just go. They end up in the ocean. They end up in the ocean. Absolutely. Yeah. Eventually. Yeah, All those cause... little things they call exfoliators or whatever. Exfoliators yeah. Are right. Up in the ocean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, you know, once again, you're discovering that home ownership is just a big a, a big capitalist scam. Somebody posted something the other day about how it was a crime that you couldn't take your rent off your taxes, but you could take your mortgage, which I, you know, hey, I agree. If you're renting, you know, there should be some kind of break. But I wanted to be like, hey, wait a minute. It's actually just mortgage interests that you get to take off your taxes. Right, right. It's not, it's <laughs> you, not your whole. Yeah, you're right. You don't get to ride off the whole kit and caboodle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I may be wrong, but I think like 30 something years ago, 40 years ago, you could take your rent. Oh, oh, you could. Taxes. Yeah, I think you could. Oh. I think that was also back in the day when you could like uh, deduct your credit card interest. Yeah. Oh, wow. As well, if you're carrying a credit card debt. And of course, they I think they wisely got got rid of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, how crazy. Well, this is already a great introduction, man. Not that you had to deal with this, but but that we're, that we're getting to talk about it on, on, the, on the pod here. Everyday real world life. Yeah, and I delight that Kentucky got beat last night. Um, that that made me feel good. That was I don't know why in particular. I think it's just the idea of a lower seed beating a higher seed. Yeah, it's, I, that's I, I I don't care about my bracket, but I pull for whoever the lower seed is. Right, it's hard not to to want the underdog, especially yeah. with basketball in situations and, where man, that, there's such, there's some good games yesterday. I'm sure there will be today, but you know, two two twelves beat fives. Yeah, and and I crazy. agree. That, you know, I love the World Cup, uh, but I do think that March Madness is the best tournament of any variety in, in the world. And I hate um, that because the NCAA is the Antichrist. Yes. And, and that's right? what I was going to say is like, yeah, you know, I mean, it's hard. You feel icky watching it. But right. You can't not watch it. Right. And, and what's really screwed up, obviously, is, you know, the decision about who gets in and who doesn't. So like the Texas yeah. A&M coach, you know, he's right. in tears. There's no reason Texas A&M shouldn't have been in that tournament. Right. Um, I have no dog in that fight. I don't care about Texas A&M other than, you know, I, I like our, our friend Lorian foot. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, Lori yeah. and Adam, I don't think they really care. I think, I think yeah. probably, I think they're going to be fine. Yeah, Brian, they're all, they're, 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 they're all going to be fine. Yeah. It is a great tournament and, uh, yeah, it's hard not to pull for the underdog. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you want to go ahead and introduce Michelle? Yeah. So today, uh, I think is going to be a, a good one and I really don't know yeah. where, where it's going to go. Um, been trying to get Michelle Moyd on the podcast for a little while now, but she had some, uh, some, some stuff happen, uh, lost her father and we, we had to put it off, but she's ready to, uh, to talk with us and, uh, maybe we'll get a chance to hear a little bit about her dad, uh, today. Um, Michelle Moyd is the Ruth N. Halls Associate Professor of History and the Associate Director of the Center for Research on Race and Ethnicity in Society at Indiana University Bloomington. She is a specialist in the history of Eastern Africa, but she wears a lot of hats at IU. Uh, she is affiliated with the African Studies Program, the Department of Gender Studies, the Department of Germanic Studies, and the Department of International Studies. Michelle received her undergraduate degree at Princeton University, her MA at the University of Florida, and a second MA and PhD at Cornell University. Before pursuing her PhD, Michelle spent eight years in the Air Force. She is the author of Violent Intermediaries, African Soldiers, Conquest, and Everyday Colonialism in, East, in German East, uh, East Africa, 
and she is the co-editor um, with Yulia Komska and David Gramling of Linguistic Disobedience, Restoring Power to Civic Language. Michelle has also authored more than a dozen articles and essays, including contributions to First World War Studies, Radical History Review, and some excellent edited volumes, uh, including uh, Santanu Dasa's Race Empire and the First World War Experience, and Tammy Proctor and Susan Grazel's Gender and the Great War. And that is really a, a go-to for anyone teaching uh, the history of the First World War. Finally, Michelle's latest book, Africa, Africans, and the First World War, is currently under contract with Cambridge University Press. Michelle's work has been supported by the Fulbright, Pro Fulbright Program, the Berlin Program for Advanced German and European Studies, and the International Research Center Work and Human Life Cycle in Global History at Humboldt University in Berlin. She also has spent time as a visiting fellow at the Institute for Historical Studies at UT Austin. Michelle has her finger on the pulse of what's going on in our profession. She's on the editorial boards of the Journal of African Military History, the Journal of Military History, First World War Studies, Central European History, and the British Journal of Military History. She's also um, a series editor for uh, Ohio University's African Military History Series. Her public service ranges from giving public lectures to fighting to keep Nazis out of Bloomington's farmer's market. Um, maybe she'll tell us a little bit more about that. Um, Michelle has presented her work all over the world, and we are most appreciative that she will be adding our little podcast to the list of interviews that she has already done. I like it. This is going to be fun. Yeah, she's uh, you gonna know, be really interesting. You can you can cut this or keep it in there. Michelle is one of the smartest people I've ever met, and I've uh, I've always had a very very high opinion of her. You can guess where I met her. Let me see. Um, an archive. Yeah, in the archive, <laughs> the, uh, the 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 federal uh, archive in Berlin Lichterfelder. And uh, there's a long uh, S-Bahn ride associated with going down to that archive. And so every night there is a crew of people who um, are, are getting on to the same um, yeah, S-Bahn right. whenever it lets out. So you've got nice. 30, 45 minutes to, to talk to people. Excellent. Good deal. Yeah, thank you. And, uh, you know, we, we decided to get started by having you tell us, you know, about yourself. Um, I know a lot about you, but our listeners are, are not going to. So, uh, you know, where are you from? What did your parents do? And uh, how did you get into history? Uh, well, so um, I am what they call a military brat, Air Force brat in particular. Uh, I was born in upstate New York at a now closed base, Rome Air Force, uh, sorry, Griffiths Air Force Base uh, in Rome, New York, Doesn't, no longer exists. But uh, my dad was in the Air Force for 28 years, and then he retired and he um, continued his career with the Department of Defense uh, in their kind of hospitality sector, I guess you'd call it. Um, my mother, uh, so, my, and my parents met in England. My mother is British, um, although a naturalized U.S. citizen. And um, so, yeah, they met there when my dad was a young GI um, and they got married and they were together until my father passed away last year. Um, so I grew up in and around the military um, 
for the first 32 years of my life. I joined the military myself. Um, I was ROTC in college and then went in the Air Force for a decade, got out, got my PhD, and that's how I became a historian. That's the short version. Um, while I was in the Air Force, I taught at the Air Force Academy in the history department for several years. Um, and that was where the transition happened for me, where I knew uh, I knew I wanted to leave one thing behind and do something else. And so um, getting out in 2000 um, to go do my PhD was, um, you know, I started later than many of my peers, but I, I knew absolutely that that was what I wanted to do in that moment. Um, so, yeah, I think that was the nutshell version. Um, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna push you a bit. Um, okay. I uh, so I, I read your father's obituary while mm -hmm. I was doing my research on you, mm -hmm. and one of the things that's that's mentioned in there is his love of Black history. Mm -hmm. And so, is that where your interest in history came from? I mean, did you grow up with him always, you know, talking to you about? about history or did you kind of reject it and then come, come, <laughs> to it come to it later? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, you know, my dad was, um, he was enlisted. He didn't go to college, but he was somebody who read a lot, um, read the newspaper every day and um, was very, very invested in, um, in knowing black history and, and in making sure that I was educated in my in my blackness and black history as I was growing up. So um, the way he did it was um, through magazine subscriptions in part. So I, he, I subscribed <laughs> to this magazine called Ebony Jr., which was you know, a, a offshoot of the famous um, magazine for, for black folks, Ebony. Um, so I read that every time it came out. Um, I have, I still have, this is something I've hung on to over the years, um, <laughs> a box of um, like flashcards, famous black people. Um, so he would actually sort of do this informal education on the side, which is not, you know, not at all um, atypical of for black families, right? Um, yeah. Because they, that kind of education typically didn't didn't and doesn't happen in schools. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't think, I don't think I knew that I could be a historian until, until I went and got a master's degree paid for by the Air Force and, and taught at the Air Force Academy. I just, you know, I was a first generation college student and I did not know that getting a PhD was a thing. Like I didn't know you could be a professional <laughs> historian. So I think the and, you know, I should bring my mom in here, too, because she, too, was raised working class, also doesn't have a college degree, but um, her parents were very interested in um, kind of uh, British cultural preservation, like manor houses and all of that stuff. And so they, too, were um, um, responsible for part of my historical education before I really knew that that was a way to make a living. So I guess you know, they were influences um, on me in these really profound, everyday, interesting ways that had nothing to do with, um, with me thinking that I could become a historian when I grew up. So uh, the advantage that your mom has is that she didn't really need a degree. She had the accent. <laughs> that's right she was and around the grew up in oxford so uh, you know she and her family come from oxford um holy 100 working class folk 
but um, you know, there's also that that piece of it too. So I actually grew up visiting Oxford uh, colleges campuses stuff as a child. Um, again, without fully understanding what it what that meant, but it certainly stuck with me that you know that there are these spaces where people think and teach and so. yeah. No, Michelle, I, I I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, that there's two Oxfords. There's 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 academic Disneyland Oxford, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and then there is there is working class Oxford. This this yeah. industrial town, and and I think you know, of course, most people go there and they go to the one and they don't see the other. And yeah. I know years ago, one of my many trips there, I went to go see an Oxford United, you know, game, and you know, taking the bus, and it was like where am I going? <laughs> you know, and you were in, right. This whole different, this yeah. whole different thing. Yeah. Um, that's, that's really interting. That's where she yeah. came from. Yeah, no, it's really, it's a, it's a nice blend of things because my grandparents were very, um, you know, they had a, they were middle-class. They had a camper, a, a, a caravan. Caravan. Yes. Caravan. <laughs> Um, so, you know, I went on these camping trips with them to Wales and various other places. I, I was, you know, it's a, it's a really, I had a great childhood that, you know, in that military way, being in the way of being a military brat, you get to uh, see the world. Um, but there was also this family piece that was um, very special in terms of what my grandparents were into and the kinds of things that they um, helped me see in terms of British history. Um, of course, I was totally, totally into royal history, like the history of queens getting their heads cut off. And yeah. can I tell a funny story? Yes, of we encourage funny stories. When I, was, um, when I was eight, we visited England when my, my dad was um, between assignments. So he was um, moving, we were moving from the US to Germany. And so we stayed in England for, a, you know, a good chunk of the summer while he was getting settled at, um, I guess that was when we were stationed in Bavaria, um, a very small place, Memmingen in, in Bayern. Anyway, so we were in England and, you know, we were doing all of these tours and stuff. And we took, we did a bus trip to London and we visited Tower of London and we did one of those tours led by a bee feeder, you know? Yeah. And, uh, so I was eight and um, the guy told the story about um, Anne Boleyn having her head chopped off and there was this flourish of, and they held her head up and her lips were still moving in words of prayer. And I passed out because <laughs> 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 it was hot, you know, and I was probably hungry or whatever, but yeah. So that's a great family story. I just passed out after hearing the Anne Boleyn story. But it did not dull my interest in um, in royalty <laughs> and murder. So um, yeah, awesome. Um, before we move on, if if memory serves, you told me uh, you you deployed to Somalia while you were in the Air Force, right? Yeah. So yeah. did that in any way, or I, I guess does that, uh, or how does that impact? the way that you do history now. I mean, you've, you've been there. We've had um, a couple of veterans on, but neither Bill nor myself, you know, have any kind of military experience. So, you know, how does having been in that kind of climate impact the way that you look at military history? So at the time that I deployed, I was not yet, again, I still didn't know I could be a military historian or a historian of any type. I was a lieutenant 
Um, I was an intelligence officer. I, I wasn't, I knew that I didn't fully belong in the military, but I also hadn't figured out what else I wanted to do. And so um, when we deployed, so I was part of a, um, a unit in what was then, and I think still called Air Mobility Command. I, I should know this, but I don't. Um, and I was part of a unit that set up, um, that was responsible for setting up like mobile headquarters in deployed settings. So, so when we deployed, I, you know, I'd done a lot of military exercises with my unit. I, all of that stuff. Right. So I was prepared professionally, I suppose, but deploying into that, deploying to Somalia in that moment was, um, this kind of unbelievable and impossible to imagine situation for me because I had never done it. I'd never deployed into a combat or potentially uh, potential combat zone. It was not a combat zone, but, you know, potential is there. But it was also just right after the first Gulf War. So I was aware of that kind of, I was aware of that contingency, right? I was aware that that is something that could happen to me. <laughs> I suppose and I was not yet an African historian. I was an intelligence officer. I had, um, you know, I did a lot of reading about Africa because of that and because of the, the responsibilities that Air Mobility Command had in that part of the world in terms of sort of, you know, the world in military speak is divided, um, divided into halves. 21st Air Force was where I worked was our half and that half included Europe and Africa and, and part of the Middle East. So I had a lot of kind of um, current events, surface knowledge about African conflicts, but I was not yet a historian. And so I think all of this to say, once I got there, I suddenly was thrust into um, the realization that there was just a lot I didn't know. Um, I most notably didn't know the language. I didn't know. So everything that was coming to us was coming from through interpreters, but also really through CNN, because journalists were out there actually doing the reporting and we were behind the walls of the U.S. Embassy compound in Mogadishu. So a lot of things crystallized for me there um, about what kind of thinker, what kind of person I wanted to be in the world. And I was not satisfied with what I knew about Somalia. Um, and I was disturbed kind of by the ways that we, you know, we went into that sovereign nation state um, with an agenda that ostensibly was and, and was about humanitarian aid. I don't want to make light of the fact that there was a famine and people were suffering. Um, <clears throat> But this mode of deployment of kind of just arriving with an agenda without the consent of the people who lived there and with very surface understanding of, of, what it, um, of what the Somali conflict was about and how Somalis thought about their country and what they wanted to make of it. I would say that was a really kind of watershed moment for me in terms of recognizing that I wanted to do something different. I still didn't know what it was, but it was shortly after I returned from Somalia that I was invited by the Air Force Academy to apply 
for a job there essentially where they would send me to to become an African historian and I jumped at the chance and I you know that was definitely because of um, because of my experience in Somalia. Well how did that invitation from the Air Force Academy come about you know why 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 were you selected? <laughs> That's a great question too and you know this uh, I, I don't think I ever got a clear answer on that but um, the rumors were that the Air Force Academy was having a, a diversity problem in that moment. And so I was recruited to, the way it works is they um, identify people that they want to join the faculty there. Um, and then they send you to, you apply to a grad school and they send you to get a master's degree, um, which is paid for by, by the Department of Defense. So again, this was not something I knew one could do, but I just kind of got a call out of the blue from the um, recruitment person at, in, at, at the academy um, in the history department saying, hey, would you like to do this? And I was like, yeah, I would. <laughs> so, um, but how they identified me, I don't know. I never really got a straight answer on that, but I mean, I think the, the key factor is they, they needed a black person a black and you know, I'm a black woman. So uh, that worked out even better in terms of um, checking, checking boxes. Um, I, and say, I don't, I don't want to make it sound too cynical because, no, no, no. but I mean, you know, that is, that was the rumor and I, I don't have any reason to doubt it. And so, so that's how I ended up there. Um, I am for, forever grateful to the Department of History at the Air Force Academy mm -hmm. for having launched me on this track, but um, I also have never, never looked back. So were you a, a captain at that time? I was, yeah. And what was the, what was the commitment after sending you to get your master's degree? How many years? Three years. Three years. I ended up being there one semester longer because as, <laughs> as soon as I got there, they issued me orders to deploy to Vicenza, um, which, and this was during the um, post, post Dayton Accords, um, you know, US and NATO presence in the Balkans. Um, so, I mean, that's a whole other story. It was the first time in the department's history that they um, had received orders to deploy someone during the academic year, I was furious because I was like, I no, I just got this master's degree. I'm doing, I came here to do this thing. And now you're sending me to this place, which I know nothing about. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a generic intelligence officer, but I don't know anything about this conflict beyond what I've read in the news. And this just seemed, this doesn't make sense. Nonetheless, I was deployed for um, three months, I guess it was. Um, and um, I successfully fought back and said, if you're going to do this, you need to add one more semester to my, to my academy tour. Um, and they gave me that. So, uh, and then I got out. <laughs> so, so, so that you was went to uh, Florida, right? For your MA? Yeah. That, yeah. What, what did, what did you do? what did you do your thesis on? I wrote about German colonial language policy in German East Africa. And that was where I first um, came across sources about the Ascari, the African soldiers who I ended up writing my dissertation and book about. But in that, uh, in that moment, I was really intrigued by the ways that um, German colonizers kind of tacked back and forth between really, really wanting people to learn German at the same time that they were um, 
uh, kind of nurturing the growth of Swahili as, as a regional lingua franca, which existed before the Germans, but what German um, missionaries and officials did was to kind of add in this, um, some infrastructure for codifying language, codifying the language, producing dictionaries, that sort of thing. And I just was really interested in that, um, in that kind of, in questions around how a colonial administration um, could, could at the same, you know, simultaneously be trying to foster the development of the German language among African peoples while also um, really working towards spreading or, you know, um, kind of growing Kiswahili um, as a, also as a language of administration. Um, so that's what I wrote about. And um, that was that was the starting point for asking more questions yeah. about <clears throat> the administration of the colony, which, you know, the, the soldiers I wrote about also played a significant part in. At, at out at Colorado Springs, you didn't you didn't cross with Nyberg, did you? With Mike, I did. Yeah, you did. Yeah, do really? you guys crossed? Okay. Yeah, we cool. were and, um, we were buds. I mean, we. Were buds. <clears throat> oh, good. All right. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. Good. Yeah. I, I did. I was trying to think of the, the timelines. No, we're exact peers yeah. um, at the Air Force Academy. He came. I think he arrived maybe a year after me. Um, yeah, we're. We're friends. <laughs> I'm trying to think um, we were else. both molded by that experience in some reason. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Mike, Mike's still, I think, in therapy. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I'm teasing. I don't know that. I just, I'm just speculating. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think, uh, was, was Jim Tucci there at that time? Yeah, he arrived yeah, um, Jim was there. kind of on my way out. Yeah, because yeah, we, we crossed, little... I, I did a year at SAS as a visitor and, okay. uh, you know, really enjoyed I learned a lot about Thucydides from him. So that was, <laughs> that was really very helpful um, yeah. you know, for sure. So, yeah. so well, obviously you continue this interest in, in Africa. How, do, how does that translate into getting interested in Africa and World War I? So again, it's, uh, well, I guess the, the convergence was that while I was at the Air Force Academy, I was teaching um, in the core, you know, the core courses um, on, world history and military history. And then, but my specialty was African history. And one of the, one of the places where there was significant overlap was World War I in East Africa, um, the East Africa campaign. And I just became um, completely fascinated with the Askari because every time I encountered them in, kind of the secondary literature that I was trying to understand in order to teach, I just kept thinking, who are these guys? <laughs> who are these guys? Like, and so again, you know, with, with a certain level of naivete about, um, about professional history and how it works, I my, you know, one of the animating questions that I kept stumbling on was, how could these black guys fight for the, for the Nazi, or, you know, in my head, the Germans who are Nazis, right? Like that, that was my, that was the frame that I was in. 
And that's the hole that I started digging myself out of with the research um, that I did start actually while I was at the Air Force Academy. I gave, I think, maybe two conference papers while I was there um, where I, um, where I, so while I was, um, let's see, gosh, this is dredging stuff up. <laughs> that's, that's why we're so, here. That's so the Air Force Academy actually paid for me to go do research one summer at, um, at the military archives in Freiburg. And while I was there, I found some materials on the Ascari that I then wrote up for my first couple of conference papers. And they were things like um, equipment lists and um, kind of reports on Ascari behavior and things like that. But at the time, because I was not yet a, um, not yet um, as steeped in historical methods, I was like, I don't know what I can really do with these, but I'm gonna write about them anyway, because they were just on the level of detail and on, and on the, the level of recognizing what those kinds of sources were saying about the troops. I just wanted to keep going on that kind of thing. So, um, so yeah, once my commitment was up um, or as I was anticipating my Air Force commitment being up, I started applying to doctoral programs um, with this project in mind. And, and um, I was uh, fortunate enough to be accepted at Cornell and that's what I did. Um, but it, yeah, it really started from that um, just curiosity about the East Africa campaign and wanting to get underneath the, this kind of really ridiculous narrative about General von Leto Forbeck as, uh, as somebody who integrated the military, I'm not kidding, like integrated the military which is just not, not a thing, right? I mean, but um, that was in the secondary literature that was produced, especially by um, British military historians, actually, um, and especially in the 60s and 70s, you keep encountering this narrative about Leto Forbeck as leader of black men. And then the secondary portion that I was more interested in was these men were doggedly loyal to him and and to Germany, <clears throat> and it just didn't it just didn't watch right. right? <laughs> so. Yeah, because at that time, it's an incredibly understudied aspect of the Great War, right? I just don't remember much being out. Not that that was my my special area or anything, but but I'll, I'll briefly become one of those people you probably really can't stand. <laughs> you know, my knowledge early on was basically you know the African Queen. I think this book came out in the mid eighties. I think I was like a sophomore in college. I, I know what book you're talking and about. I, and I, I read it, I saw my own. Uh, I think it was, it was Byron Far Far Farwell. Farwell, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, what's it called? Just a great war in Africa. Great war in Africa. I think yeah. so. Yeah. Yeah. So I, and I, I read that only because I, that's when I was really starting to kind of get into military history and I was reading just all sorts of things, but I actually found that book in a, in a thing uh, what's it called? Um, a, a bookstore. Mm -hmm. And, you know, actually found, you know, like, like, well, that looks interesting. I don't know anything yeah. about that. And, and I read it. And of course, you know, it, my recollection, which is very vague now, because it was so long ago, but, I mean, I read it in 1986, mm -hmm. is that that was a, a, what I know now is a, a classic, you know, top down, you know, white guy, you know, mm -hmm. deal, uh, in, in, you know yeah. colonial interpretation, imperialist interpretation, I guess, of, of what went on. 
where the Africans themselves are kind of, they're, they're just things to be moved around, mm-hmm. if I remember right. And so yeah. with, with that really horrific introduction to my question, <laughs> um, I know you're, you're working on your book that you're going to do for Cambridge, Africa, Af- Africans in, in, in the First World War. Obviously, there's been movement. There's been progress. The, the mm-hmm. history is better. Uh, yeah. wh- where do you think it's at right now, and and what do you what do you see that still needs to be done? What what do you you yourself want to continue to do? But what would you encourage other like especially younger scholars who want to get into this? You know, where do we where do we need to go now? Yeah, that's a big question. It is, um, but yeah, I'm glad you asked. It's important. Um, I mean, I think that other parts of the world, especially Europe, you know, war and society the war and society um, work that's been done is tremendous, right? So we know a lot about gender in the war and we know a lot about medicine in the war and disability. And um, I would like to see those things happen for Africa as well, right? I would like us to be able to tell a much richer um, story about how the conflict affected different parts of the continent across all dimensions of life, human life, right? So. We know a lot about the campaigns from the top down. We know a lot about the diplomacy that uh, between empires, right? That sort of shaped the way that the war started there. Um, We know, I would say quite a bit now about African soldiers and I've contributed to that, but there are other scholars who've done work on Francophone, uh, Senegalais, uh, Senegalais, excuse me. Um, the King's African Rifles um, and others. So, so those parts I think are, are pretty well fleshed out, but we know far less about um, economies and um, the kinds of change, social and cultural change that were generated as a result of the war. And when I say we, we, there's, we, we don't know as much that's actually not true. I mean, we there are things that we know, but they have not been brought into the World War I kind of container yet. So African historians have been working on uh, those kinds of questions as part of the work they do in the places that they study, right? So um, preeminent historian of, um, of um, Tanzania, uh, John Iliff, for example, wrote a whole history of modern Tanganyika and he has a whole chapter on World War I, um, which is I think still in many ways, the one of the best accounts from an African perspective of World War I in, East Af- in German East Africa, bringing those histories into, um, into what I think of as sort of World War I historiography, which again is you know, problematic. Um, I think there's still a lot more to do there. And, um, and I think people are intimidated by it because like anything else, it requires the building of expertise in, in a continent where there are thousands of language groups and geographies and you know, 54 independent nation states, which shape how you access these histories, right? Like I've just transitioned into studying Malawi, Nyasaland, which is right next to Germany, East Africa, but it's like a complete world away in terms of learning a new right. historiography, learning how a different empire operates, 
um, not to mention their how their military is organized and um, and so just that small that slight shift in in my own kind of training and expertise is you know I'm having to spend a lot of time just learning this history and and that's that's hard so yeah. so um, so I think we need more people who are who would be willing to go in and do that kind of work and not necessarily adhere to national boundaries because those make it very difficult actually to write certain kinds of histories um, in Africa and yeah ask the ask the hard questions about you know what's going on with Christianity in this moment um, when well Brian you probably know some things about this in terms of your work on um, prisoners of war and such right there were Europeans who were being imprisoned by enemy combatants um, right. and being sent all over the world to yep. serve terms, you know, as, as prisoners of war, right? So missionaries and colonial officials who were being sent uh, to India. I'd be interested in knowing what's going on with the Africans who were left behind to run the missions, for example. And again, this work has been done in certain contexts, but just it feels like the available histories are, are so disparate and in different places that bringing it all together is, is quite laborious. Yeah. And, you know, I'll say having taken on this project um, a very long time ago and thinking it would not be that hard to, not that it would be hard, not that it wouldn't be hard to kind of learn the histories, but then to think about how to organize it and narrate it in a way that um, would be engaging to outside readers, but also um, do justice to what I want to do, which is to narrate the histories from African perspectives. It's, it's hard. And, and my tendency is to want to go into detail on like one thing or, you know, to really focus on one thing and get it right. Um, so right now I'm working on this rebellion in 1915 by John Shalembwe, who's this super interesting figure, um, you know, uh, mission-educated pastor of a Baptist church who in 1915 led his congregation to, um, to take up arms against the British in this millenarian movement. And I just, you know, I'm endlessly fascinated by this history. I can't write a whole book that just focuses on that, but I, I've been thinking a lot in the last few months about him and what his story tells us about World War One from an African perspective. Ooh, uh, I talk a lot. <laughs> no, one, no one, one of the things you have really going for you is when that book is done, it's going to sell like hotcakes. I mean, it is going to, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, it, it, it's needed to be written for so long that, uh, you know, when it's going to be the go-to book. Very quickly, and you don't have to say a whole lot about this. It's it doesn't have anything to do with military history, but it does mm -hmm. have to do with history. Um, during the pandemic, um, you did something that I thought was was pretty cool. Uh, I read it every day. Um, you started keeping a uh, essentially a daily journal on Facebook about what was going on with you. And what I thought was so remarkable was the number of people who were like closely reading this thing and commenting and keeping up with it. Yeah. So why did you decide to do that to put yourself out there like that? And, um, you know, what kind of responses have you, have you gotten? I've, I've read where people have, you know, commented on your stuff, but uh, yeah. I thought it was really neat. Why did I start it? I, I mean, I, 
it was this, that bizarre moment in March of 2020 where, you know, it was spring break. We'd been told we're not coming back from spring break. And I remember just kind of sitting in the house and my daughter was home and my husband was home and we're all kind of like, this is weird and interesting. And, um, and I, it hadn't, I don't think I was feeling scared yet, but I was definitely in this kind of um, puzzle. I don't know, like this, I was not puzzled, puzzled is the wrong word, but I was, I was bemused. I was like, this is, this is interesting and um, people are acting weird and I'm, we're trying to buy groceries, but we don't, you know. There's no toilet paper. Why is that? Yeah. And so I, and my, and my kid was, there. I think that was part of it too. Like we're home and my kid was there and I was just, and we're trying to find things for her to do. And I think it just grew out of that sense of on one hand, a kind of momentousness that felt like it deserved some attention, but then also this, I don't know, an urge to kind of document the everyday somehow. Um, and, yeah. you know, in my work, that's what I'm interested in too. Like I really am drawn to, to the notion of the everyday as being of importance. And so that's where it started. It started out of my living room and my kid was watching like, you know, some kind of puppet show on, on the iPad. And, and my husband, it was, out buying groceries. Well, um, it, you know, the, I don't know. It was so it wasn't anything. I guess the short answer is it wasn't anything dramatic. It was yeah. like very mundane and sort of. Um, and you know, Brian, you know that I was an epic Facebook poster anyway. So Facebook yeah. had become sort of um, a space where I already had you know pretty big following readership right. ever. And so then when I started writing those things. And people started kind of seeing their own lives reflected in there. That's the sense I got that people, it became kind of a touchstone and, and people felt drawn to it because it gave them something, a place where they could identify with, with what it was like to be a mid-career or even early career academic. But also I was commenting on politics um, right. and you know, George Floyd uh, happened yeah, yeah. not long after. So then, yeah, I mean, that was, well, that was the space I was in. And the thing that, that fascinated me about it, because I talk to my students a lot. Um, we teach a lot of veterans at Georgia Southern. And I've got, mm -hmm. uh, for example, I've got two students in my senior seminar right now, both uh, did tours in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And we talk about, you know, I rely on, you know, prisoner of war letters. Um, we, we rely on so many of these printed documents that simply aren't produced anymore. Yeah. And so like when I talk to my, my current veterans um, and I say, think about it, you know, did you save the emails that you sent back and forth to your family? And they're like, no. And so I thought immediately about what you were doing. And, you know, the problem is this is gold, but how's it ever going to be saved? Like what's yeah. going to happen to that? Um, yeah, I mean, part of it is saved because a friend who, um, and she, she, she emailed me one day, I guess I commented on, you know, one of my posts, like I should be saving these or something. And she, um, kind of sheepishly wrote to me, guess what? <laughs> she's like, uh, I hope this isn't weird, but I've been putting them in a Google doc. And I was like, <laughs> so, um, 
So she did it up to a point and then, um, you know, stopped. And yeah, I, I mean, I'm eternally grateful to her for having done it. So there's still work to be done to collect them all into one place. And, um, and I, I would, I do want to do that. But yeah, I, I think that would be the first step is just to go do the tedious work of going back through my Facebook feed and finding them all and making sure they're all in one place. Yeah. Um, and I've definitely, you know, different people have talked to me about doing something with them, um, publishing them somehow. I'm not hesitant about publishing. I'm just, I don't know how, I don't know what to do with them exactly. I like, I don't want it to just, I wouldn't want it to just be, here's my Facebook diaries. I, like yeah. I would want to put it into some kind of framework. And I mean, part of what's, what was interesting about them too, was that people were commenting, right. You know, so there's, there are people commenting on what I wrote and I feel like that's part of it too. That's, yeah, absolutely. And so how do you, I think, you know, this would be a problem to take to my digital humanities friends and say, what would be, what would be a fruitful way of um, publishing these? It's got something. commercial press written all over it. <laughs> yeah. It really yeah. does. I mean, that, that would be, that'd be a marvelous. Thanks. It really yeah. would. I mean, that, yeah. that, yeah, I suppose you'd have to get the permission of people who commented to, yeah. you don't have to, yeah. they, they, you wouldn't have to use them, their names, but. Right. Or you know, figure out a way to just kind yeah. of. Generalize uh, it or something. Yeah. yeah. You know, Paraphrase, but it's, I guess. it's definitely on my mind. And I've, I did actually have a publisher approach me um, just within the last couple of weeks to talk about doing something. So um, there you so are to be continued. Yeah. Um, that, make, that makes me feel good because I recognize that these things were important and uh -huh. other people, you know, I'm not alone. So <laughs> there you go. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> no, it's been really gratifying to hear from people um, and that, that it meant something to them and that, you know, I've been off of Facebook now for probably five months, six months for the most part. And people are like, I really miss you. I miss your, I miss your posts. And so, you know, I, and I, I don't think I fully wrapped my head around what, what it means, what that means. And like what I was giving to that, um, that I wasn't putting into my real work. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's, so yeah, but um, there was something else I was going to say. Uh, oh, so uh, for readers of Central European History Journal or those who have access to it, um, uh, Dominique Ryle, she's a scholar of um, kind of Italy, history of um, Italy and that region, Slovakia, Slovenia, Croatia, et cetera. Um, anyway, she was one of the avid readers of my um, of my journal on Facebook, and she invited me to write something about it for the for the journal Central European History because they were doing a forum on um, historians in the age of COVID. Wow. And I so I said yes, and then I dragged my feet on it, and she, eventually she just said, "Hey, do you want to just do you want me to just interview you, and we can just." do it that way. And so that's what we did. And that forum with my interview with Dominique in it is was published in the last issue of. Okay. CEH. We'll, we'll put a link up so, uh, to that. So that um, also has some, um, some of the stuff about how I started and yeah, it, it's good. I mean, she did a really great job of drawing out like bits of the journey. She read the whole thing um, <laughs> and she did a great job of 
pulling pieces out um, and then kind of organizing sections around um, around those quotes and stuff. So that was a lot of fun to do. Well, Bill, should we take our faux break? Yeah, let's take our faux break. Yeah. All right, Michelle, we, we got one more question for you. And okay. then we're going to go into uh, our rapid fire that we, we use to wrap things up. And um, so this last question, um, I, 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 I'm torn about because, you know, you are a black woman. And I don't want to be the the white guy who asks you to speak for all black women. Um, but that at would, the same, but at the same time, <laughs> You are in an extremely unique position. There's, there's not a lack of representation in the military when you talk about black women, right? I mean, mm-hmm. so what do we need to do? Um, and this is, you know, the old classic thing of like asking you to fix a problem that you didn't create. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what do we need to do so that in 10 to 15 years, we have more Michelle Moyes? Hmm. Um, that's, that's a good question. It's, it's an exciting question actually to think about. I mean, I, part of it is the, you know, the perennial problem with military history, right? Which is the perception that it is a thing that a lot of people don't want to touch with a 10 foot pole, right? Cause it's, um, it's, it's a lot of details about troop movements and order of battle and technology, you know, weapons technology and, that still don't understand how that's still a perception. I know it's we have we. I mean, I, it, to me, it's a failing on our part to not educate our colleagues and others about the just unbelievably amazing stuff that's been going on in the last twenty years. Yeah, it, it, it's it right? is strange, and or that it's the airport, you know, the airport bookstore um, history shelf, right? It, which is Nazis and ah, um, uh, that's the enemy. Okay. And air, Makes sense. Know, air power and um, and journalistic reports on the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan to a certain degree, right? So it's, I don't know, it's a weird, weird set of problems. But in any case, I, I wish that more people understood that studying the military and studying warfare is a way into a whole lot of other really important and interesting questions. So for me right now, you know, the thing that's, well, so there's the World War I Chilembe religion um, and anti-colonial resistance piece that I find absolutely compelling, um, which I think you have to understand both in the context of local African history um, and in the context of a world war that was being perceived by African peoples as the end of the world. I mean, that's really interesting and important. And, um, and I wish that more people could see their way in, could, could get past the, the label of World War I and see all of this rich stuff underneath, um, or not underneath, but the things that are enlivening it, making it right. happen, right? Um, same for gender, right? I mean, you don't you don't get troops into the field without certain kinds of labor being done that are gendered feminine, right? Um, and if you can't if you can't get past 
the label or you can't get past what's important about World War I or the trenches on the Western Front, you don't see all the ways that certain kinds of labor are getting done to make that all possible. And then it becomes, to me, again, this kind of mind-blowing, staggering history of the mobilization of millions and millions of people to do work that they were not doing before, right? It's just, to me, that's, that's just mind-blowing. It continues to blow my mind. Like when you think about the mobilization of laborers from Africa to the Western Front or to Gallipoli or to Egypt, whatever. All the like, ones from China that were sent. Yeah, China, right? that story yeah. is incredible. Um, and so anyway, I think, I just wish there were ways that, that people could be drawn into those histories um, because there's so much there to be done still. And um, yeah, so how do you create more me's? I think uh, it's, I think reaching veterans is one way, right? I mean, I don't know the extent to which black women veterans are taking history courses, um, but I wish they were, and I wish that they would do the kind of thing that I'm doing, <laughs> you know, because that would be a really fantastic way in. I mean, I, I, I have benefited from my military service as a historian. I continue to benefit because I see things that other people don't. Yeah. I was able to write violent intermediaries in the way that I did because, because I grew up in the military and because I was in myself, you know. So I don't know, how do you recruit um, black women veterans to being historians? I don't know. Well, um, and, and it, you know, to, it's, it's interesting. And just in my experience teaching the history that I teach here, I have a lot of African-American men who are extremely interested in military history. Mm -hmm. I just don't get very many African-American women who yeah. are, are, you know, interested in it. So yeah. um, it just seems like, uh, you know, there, there's uh, obviously uh, a racial situation, but then also a gender situation. Yeah. Um, and I guess it comes down to how much. So when I teach the World War One survey, you know, you're always trying to figure out what gets left out um, because you can't do it all. Yeah. And I, you know, I know even for myself as somebody who's keenly interested in the gender dimensions of the war, I often don't do that much with it in the survey course. So I think it's what you, I don't know, what we are choosing to elevate in the courses that we teach when we have the opportunity to reach kind of um, general population of students who might be drawn in. Um, that's a good reminder to me that um, I don't, I don't have to do coverage. I I should be thinking about what kinds of things would um, will be compelling to students certainly, but also what are the things that could draw people in who might otherwise be reluctant. Now, one we didn't we didn't uh, I didn't ask you this question, but one of the questions we had was on teaching, and so that kind of covers some of what I wanted to talk about there, because, you know, you, everyone knows you as a scholar, but, you know, looking at your CV, you've gotten a lot of teaching grants. You put a lot of time into um, reworking your classes and trying to diversify the way that, that people teach the first world war. And so, um, you know, that's, that's a, a great starting point. Um, Bill. Rapid fire. Rapid fire. 
Rapid Fire. What Michelle. Yes. Welcome to Rapid Fire. <laughs> which is not rapid. We need we we keep saying we need to find another name. We're too lazy. We just don't find another name for it. Sure. Uh, we're going to ask you ten questions. Okay. Uh, Brian will ask you a couple. I'll ask you a couple. Uh, these will cover all sorts of various and sundry items. Yeah. Right. And uh, you can respond quickly. You can think whatever. Uh, just be warned if there's long pauses, we will leave those in. Because <laughs> we'll say, ha, see, Michelle, she she didn't know. She had to look. She had to think about it. Um, so, uh, and, and of course, we reserve the right to comment, mm -hmm. which which we will yep. to, to a degree. Sounds right. good. Let's do it. All right. All right. You ready? So, Brian, go. All right. Best work of history you've read recently? Uh, it's the one I'm reading right now, which is called Independent African. Uh, John Schlemway and the Nyasaland Rising of 1915 by George Shepperson and Thomas Price. All right. That was that was perhaps was the easy. quickest answer we've ever gotten to that question. <laughs> yeah. Other uh, people look at their shelves and try to, you know, yeah. Well, recently was the keyword. Right. right. Okay. You yeah. said ever, I would probably still be sitting here. So <laughs> we, we've got another recent for you. Best okay. non-history book. What are you reading fiction wise or just something that's not related to your work at all? Okay. Um, I'm reading a collection of stories by a colleague of mine in gender studies, Stephanie Andrea Allen called How to Dispatch a Human. She is a, um, a writer of speculative fiction. And uh, she, so on the side, um, when she's not doing her day job, she's writing, um, she writes a lot of fiction. And so I've been reading um, kind of a story a day, a day or every few days. Um, nice. Yeah. Good to take a break. Yeah. All right, what are you binge watching? Oh, embarrassing. Um, ah, this is where we get to the good stuff. <laughs> Inventing Anna on Netflix. Oh, I, I just started that. I'm only I'm only an episode in, but it yeah. it's it's good. It's yeah. hard. Do you watch Ozark? I watched. Uh, yeah, we're waiting so, for the final installment. So it's hard to see her as anything other than the Ozark character. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's that's that's been the challenge for me thus far. It's just been a. I mean, it's. Yeah, inventing Anna is hard to watch for a lot of reasons. It's cringeworthy, both in some elements of the storytelling, but then also just the the story itself, right? You're just like, oh my yeah. God, how? All right, what music are you listening to? What have you downloaded recently, streaming? What are you into right now? Mm, gosh, I'm trying to think of the last thing I downloaded that was new. I think it was um, WizKid, um, which I think the song is Essence. Um, so it was it was on, you know, pop radio a couple months ago. Um, yeah. Yeah. What's, what's your go-to music? My go-to music is the music of my childhood, which was also my dad's. Uh, yeah. Comedy dad's playlist and uh that is 70s soul um so earth wind and fire spinners um aretha franklin uh you know really pretty much anything from the 70s soul um 
I, that's that's what I gravitate to. And then I also have kind of a secondary uh, kind of set of things that I listened to that was my soundtrack while I was writing my dissertation. Uh -huh. um, yep. And that is 90s um, trip hop or late 90s, early 2000s trip hop, um, like Massive Attack and Portishead and um, what else? Some other groups like that. Um, along with ambient kind of chill out music as they called it in Germany and at, yeah. that, oh, at yeah. the time that I met Brian yeah right. that stuff was big <laughs> um, back then yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then um kind of an assortment of uh African West African Kora music um like by people like Tumani Javate and have, have you seen uh, the uh on Apple TV the uh, documentary 1971 the year that changed music. Mm -mm. It's a multi-part deal, but they have some really good bits like on Marvin Gaye in Vietnam. Well, Sly and the Family Stone, right? Yeah. Um, yeah and, uh, and Aretha, she's on there, I think. It's really mm -hmm. interesting. The footage is amazing. It's really yeah. good. You uh, should also check out Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> she's really popular with a lot of our guests. <laughs> I'm not yeah. kidding. Yeah, yeah, it's always Taylor Swift. And it's like, All really, right. All right, I, th cool. I, think, I think they're just reaching for something and it's just, right. Yeah. It's either Taylor Swift. I or also Taylor. recently watched the, um, so I was a huge Rick James fan as a teen, mm -hmm. as a like yeah. 12 year old teenager type um, age range. And so I recently watched the documentary on him. Um, yeah. It's on Showtime, I believe. And man, that took me out for a few days because I was just yeah. sort of like, he was such a genius and, um, and so, so troubled. And so, uh, it's just so hard to like contain all of that. And, and, and then to think back to who I was at 12, 13 years old and who he was as a, as a person. Um, anyway, that generated a few days of me revisiting my Rick James, um, years of, you know, going back to his music and listening. Um, so all right a book on africa that everyone should read uh it is still undefeated in my mind coletso atkins's um the moon is dead give us our money which is a history a labor history of um natal um zulus who um were Kind of in a labor relationship with British colonizers who didn't understand the ways that Zulus themselves thought about their work. Um, yeah. And so it created all of these really interesting and, um, and troubling tensions and disruptions. And it really, when I first read that book, it was the first time that I sort of, I, I remember as a graduate student in the 90s when I was doing my master's degree, just kind of thinking, oh, it, you know, people see the world differently. I'm down to the basics of how people reckon time and what it means to be in a work relationship with somebody who can legitimately make you work um, or ask you to work. The title is a reference to, you know, the way that the calendar works in the British 
system versus what Zulus yeah. considered to be a month, right? Which was different. And so Zulus who had done a month's work wanted to be paid when the moon was full or the moon is dead, moon is dead, um, not full. Um, but that was not how British employers were thinking of when somebody gets paid. So it, it was just a really, it just cracked open a whole kind of new set of considerations for me and thinking about how people are in the world. All right. If, if you, or if someone only gets to ever visit one place in Africa, where should it be? Well, I've not been to that many places myself. Um, you know, I've spent time in Tanzania, Kenya. I shouldn't be talking so much. Where should it be? Um, it no, should you're good. Be, um, <laughs> that's that's why we're here. Be, <laughs> um, rapid fire. I was thinking rapid fire. Oh no! Nah, that's, um, like I said, it's, it's a bad never thing. rapid. It's a bad. I gosh, what one place? Zanzibar. Or, I'm going to go with Zanzibar okay. because yeah. I think you know that was a place that where I. Um, what what can you say about a new place that besides that it's unique, right? That I mean, it's the it's the um, presence of all of these Indian Ocean and and East African and Muslim influences, the architecture, um, the food, the um, there's a colonial layer to it too, right? Um, so it's it was it's just a really interesting and dynamic place sounds like a sensory explosion yeah. yeah yeah first time i went to vietnam it was like right because i'd never been to asia before and it was just you know yeah. sensory overload i could say one more though and this just came to me too um also in tanzania the first time i went to um the usambara mountains in the north eastern corner of <clears throat> tanzania um it's a place that I had read about in the colonial sources that I read, um, memoirs described it. Um, and so I was prepared to be um, pleasantly, I was, I was prepared for it to be a beautiful place. But what I wasn't prepared for was this sort of, um, uh, the way that the landscape um, draws you into African sensibilities about agriculture and um, and the use of the land. And it's a tropical, it's still a tropical environment, but it's a very high elevation. So it's mountainous. The Germans used it as a, as a uh, core area, yeah. right? Like a place where you go to get away from the malarial um, coastline or whatever. And I just remember, uh, you know, this, this moment of like, I've read about this and this is how the Germans described it. And that stuff was accurate, but also I, I see this from the perspective of the African peoples who've worked this land for centuries yeah. and, and bringing those two things together for me as a historian was, um, was also really important. Okay, this is another intense question. What's your bicycle brand of choice? And we say that knowing that your partner has a bike yeah. shop. Yeah, thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the first bike I had, the first real bike that I had um, as a child was a Raleigh. Um, oh, that's, yeah, that's I, me. I have fond memories of that Raleigh. Um, 
now I don't know. I just, my, my husband. Whatever he brings up. home. <laughs> and uh, we currently have, I don't know if you can see back there, there's a cargo bike in that. Oh yeah, corner, yeah. Uh, which is his, his current favorite. So that's my favorite right now too. All right. It gets to stay in the house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what's your favorite neighborhood in Berlin? Schoenberg. Really? I, I like Schoenberg. Um, I, you know, I, I lived there for two, a, a year and a half, roughly, um, from 2012 to 2013. Yeah. Um, I had a, a fellowship there. So that was after I was faculty at IU. When I was dissertating, um, I lived in Kreuzberg. And before the, you know, that would have been my answer before we lived in Schoenberg. Yeah. Um, but Kreuzberg had actually changed quite a bit in the years between me finishing my dissertation and going back in 2013. And I felt, I think I felt like Kreuzberg had had its moment a little bit, yeah. like it was gentrifying and it felt more expensive and it felt less kind of. Yeah. When the year that I met you, I guess it would have been 06 when you were there, um, Kreuzberg was kind of rough and tumble and it mm -hmm. was the like it was the cool place to be but yeah I mm -hmm. think that has that has definitely gone away yeah and I would never have said Schoenberg before I lived there because I just always thought it was a place you passed through yeah but living there I realized there's just so much cool stuff there in terms of um I mean that weird Nazi bunker thing. Did you yeah. ever see that? Yeah. And, um, it's, you know, there's the monument to um, gay uh, victims of the Holocaust and there's some really cool shopping streets and, but then also this, you know, really lively Turkish and Arab. Yeah. Population. They've got a great weekly, um, weekly market. market. Yeah. We lived good, right down one. the street yeah. from um, the, the, uh, that market right there on Großgerschenstrasse. Yeah. Um, so we loved it. Okay. Um, this is maybe easy, maybe not. Wine or beer? Wine. Really? Yeah. All that, all that youth experience in, in Germany, which I guess you would have been around good <laughs> wine in the areas where you were, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I grew up in, uh, you know, like with Rhine Mosel. Yeah. And, Although I don't really like, I mean, they're okay, but I don't really drink much white wine. Um, yeah, I mean, I like beer. It's not that I don't like beer, but I think if I'm picking between the two, unless it's a, I don't know, it, it depends. Hot summer day sometimes just calls for a cold beer, right? A nice beer, yeah. Okay. Okay, now one of the, uh, the questions we ask everyone um, has to do with barbecue. And uh, it's because, you know, I'm from South Carolina, mm -hmm. Bill's from Texas. We have very different ideas. Whereas we appreciate each other's barbecue, we have ideas about what is barbecue. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know where this is going to go with you. I think I have an idea. I'm, I'm banking on your father's influence. Um, so first off, is barbecue pork or brisket? <laughs> pork. There you go. All right. Uh, Dad came through. Uh, <laughs> Her father's also from South Carolina. So uh, well, there you are. There yeah. you are. That's that's um, that's can't compete against that. So yeah. 
in Bloomington, if you ever go out for barbecue, um, where should you go? The place we go is a place on the square downtown called Smokehouse. You know, it's, yeah, that's where we go. Um, There are some other um, kind of more local folks who have just the, you know, the uh, smoker set up or food trucks, um, which we haven't explored as much. Um, So there may be others that are better, but um, if we're just, if we just really want barbecue, we, we get, we usually get takeout from the smokehouse. And uh, a bonus question, and you could tell this, this could be an hour story on its own. So just very quickly, have you successfully uh, driven the neo-Nazis out of the farmer's market in Bloomington? Um, my understanding is yes, that the, the main, uh, the, 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 the person who was um, the target of much organizing is no longer part of the city market. Uh, the city market, however, is not the only game in town anymore. Um, there are, or as of last year, there are at least two other um, farmers markets that were operating. Um, and so I don't know about driven out because as you know, um, white nationalists and folks who are organized around white nationalist thought can morph and change yeah. just as quickly as anyone else. And so right. I'm not sure what that individual is doing right now. I've been pretty checked out of that scene for a bit, but um, I think all of the structures, all of the ties, the organizations are still in place. Uh-huh. The city market is still a place where uh, that is run by and for white liberals. Um, And so the potential is always there for, you know, new things to pop up and, and they may not be named Nazis or neo-Nazis, but. Right. They may look like, or just organic farmers. Yep. Walks like a duck. (laughs) Well, you should always eat chemical laden produce. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Well, hey, it has been great having you on. Um, really appreciate you doing it. Uh, when in, in the intro, when we were talking about all the stuff you do, I know you're very, very busy. And uh, it was it was really great to have a chance to catch up. And um, any chance you're going to be in Fort Worth uh, for the SMH? I'm not going to SMH, but I did just sign on to go to German studies in Houston. So okay. they makes it there. Um, all right. Catch up. Well, and have a beer. Yes, a beer. <laughs> awesome. And some brisket. Yeah. And some brisket. <laughs> Just saying. Just saying. Thank you very much. Thanks. This was a great way to end the week. And I really, really appreciate you inviting me. And um, I've, I've been fangirling the series. So um, awesome. <laughs> She, she talked a lot about, you know, Michelle mentioned how her military experience made, made it possible to do what she does. Right. And, um, you know, that's, she didn't talk about how she got her German language skills and I've never really talked to her about it. I assume that she probably picked it up when she, you know, was, was growing up um, as a military brat in, in Germany. 
Right. Um, and so that experience, once again, you know, her is kind of fed into what she was eventually able to do, because I know she had to learn African languages um, in order to do her research. So she does research in, in German archives, in English language archives and in African archives. And so um, that's a, that's a pretty rare skill set. So uh, you know, she's 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 really had to do some work to, to be able to do what she's doing. Well, I look forward to the book. Yeah. That's yeah, going to that be, that's will, going to be a good one. That, that will uh, immediately uh, make an impact Yeah, there. She's the person to write it. And um, you know, she has always been extremely, extremely kind to me uh, when I was a, you know, a kid, I met her in Berlin. She's a little older than I am uh, is definitely, you know, more experienced. And there've been a couple of times I've asked her for advice. I've said, Hey, I'm applying for this. And she said, here's, you know, a copy of my application for when I applied for it five years ago. Um, right. So she's, she's not only brilliant, she's one of those people who is, is more than willing to, to help people out. And so uh, yeah. I'm glad that, glad that we were able to get her on. Good deal. Well, this was good. Uh, keep, keep posting, keep sharing, keep listening. And uh, we've got, as we always say, we haven't had a dud yet, and nope. we've got a lot more to come. So yep. stay tuned. All right. Take care. Military Historians Are People Too is produced, written, and hosted by Brian Feltman and Bill Allison. Music is written and performed by Bill Allison, who clearly is not BJ Lederman. Military Historians Are People Too is hosted on Anchor by Spotify. Check back soon for new episodes. Thanks for listening.